You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. a really nice tune. Um, where was the tune from for that? That's brilliant. <laughs> Did you write it? Good. 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 Is that true? <laughs> well, it's good to be with you uh, again and um, to open a little bit, the next bit of 2 Corinthians with you. Uh, I bring you greetings from the Island Study Conference. Uh, where I was last weekend, um, Tarbert Harris, and it was a great time, and uh, lovely fellowship with the people there, and uh, John Angus, Prof. John Angus from the seminary was doing the other talks, and uh, we just had a wonderful time. And so they pray for you, and for the church plant in Montrose, where I was preaching this morning, and uh, are thrilled at the way that the Lord is blessing you here. And um, so... Uh, there was much hilarity about uh, me having to become a free church minister and that kind of thing, so just keep people guessing. I have to say, before we look at 2 Corinthians six fourteen, following that David has asked me expressly not to mention the sad demise of Dundee United at the hands of Dundee, possibly tomorrow. Um, and he was very um, keen that I shouldn't mention that to you, the tragedy of it and the pathos and the distress that this will cause, particularly to two elders in the fellowship. And so uh, I won't say anything about that, um, nor about the fact that David is going to be 54 this week, which (laughs) comes slightly more of a shock to me than it does to him, um, since I've now discovered that I'm two years older than your vicar. Um, It really is a shock. I mean... (laughs) What went wrong, David? I mean, use more Nivea. Um, <laughs> or shave. Uh, the, anyway, we go back a long way. Um, just a little bit further than <laughs> I thought. So, 2 Corinthians 6. Now, we're going to read from, uh, from 6.14 through to 7.2. And then I'm going to say a little bit about the way that... Um, the verses work around here and how you make the sections work and all that kind of thing. Um, And uh, then we'll get into the meat of the text. Uh, So 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore come out from among them, And be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves 
from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, we have exploited no one. Now, um, you don't have to raise a hand, uh, but I I guess um, I wouldn't be alone in having spent donkey's years thinking that when Paul begins verse 14, he has switched his mind quite inexplicably to talking about Christians not marrying non-Christians. Now, am I, well, I, am I, I'm not the only one who thinks that that's what, who thought for a while that's what that verse is about. Okay? Well, we were wrong. Uh, <laughs> now, the fact that it suddenly looks like that, and that verse 14, if you take it that way, because um, the word do not be yoked together with unbelievers, that um, unequal yoking is one word in the Greek, and can be translated mismated, not just mismatched, but mismated. So, you know, for that reason, for other reasons, um, this has traditionally been seen by many, at least, as you know, a verse to say to people, listen, you know, don't, don't go and marry somebody who isn't a Christian because you're going to be unequally yoked. Um, you know, like, like uh, the Old Testament forbids uh, putting together on a yoke that wooden beam that will go across the shoulders of two animals pulling a plow, um, an ox and a donkey, for instance. Don't do that. That's because, you know, you're not, it's not going to work. Um, however, what people have done with that then is to say, well, why all of a sudden would Paul interrupt what he's saying to, you know, like switch tracks and talk about where did that come from? And so all sorts of uh, stuff has been written by scholars, um, because it has to be or you don't get paid, um, about where this comes from. And one of the sort of popular um, ideas has been that, well, there's at least one, possibly two letters that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth that we just don't have. And maybe this is a bit from one of them which has got stuck in here. Maybe, <laughs> like, frankly, so what? Because the point is not where did it come from. The point is why is it there? As a whole screed of stuff's been written about where it came from, none of it can be even remotely conclusive. It's all speculative, and it, it is all based on the premise that this doesn't seem to fit the preceding verses nor the ones that follow. However. First of all, uh, don't be yoked together with unbelievers or don't be unequally yoked or don't be mismatched. Um, There is absolutely no necessity whatsoever within the text to see this suddenly as a verse about marriage. None whatsoever. In fact, there are several good reasons not to and several very good reasons to actually read these verses as a pretty essential part of what Paul is saying. In fact, it's the sharp end of the the, the practical consequences of what Paul has been saying up until this point. Far from being a completely separate matter that got introduced by somebody else who was sort of cutting and pasting and and gluing bits of Paul's letters together for fun, um, it it belongs right in the midst of, of, of what Paul is saying. Now, 
to, to begin to get our heads around that, that 614 following are not sort of you know, weird verses imported by somebody else that break it all up, to get our heads around the fact of that, we need to just understand something about the way Paul writes. Um, we have nice paragraphing in our Bibles, and we have section headings that people have put in um, because they think that this is you know, now a change, and so here's something to flag that up, and they give a little section a title. Paul didn't write with section headings. Um, in fact, Paul hardly wrote with the kind of paragraphing that we do. Um, Paul writes long, long flowing sentences. Romans is one sentence. Well, it's not really, but you know, I mean, he writes really long sentences. And Paul writes long sentences that have clauses and subclauses and then pulls something back in. So if you want to get a picture for how Paul writes, don't think of a, a block and a block and a block, nice linear stuff like that. I mean, Paul can put an argument together like the best of them, don't get me wrong. But the way Paul writes is more like waves overtaking each other going up a seashore. And then you get a backwash, and you get another whole lot. So one sort of train of thought with Paul will kind of seeg almost seamlessly into the next one and flow back a little bit. And, and sometimes he'll, he'll pull something in from a few verses earlier and, and stick it in there, and off he goes again. It, it, it is a, an interwoven, complex flow of thought, the way Paul writes. So even the thought in Paul's style of writing, of him suddenly stopping, like going away and having a cup of tea or coffee or something, and, you know, swanning around town, getting some shopping done, coming back in, and going off on a completely different train of thought, you've got to stop and think about that. That's not really the way that Paul writes. It's, it's the way that when people are producing New Testaments, people tend to carve Paul up to make it a bit easier. Because if you simply transliterated and put it out there, or translated and, 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 and put, the, put the words out in English in the way that they are in the Greek, not just because Greek sentences work a bit differently, but because of the way Paul writes, it would be very, very difficult to get a handle on, on things. So, the first step in just reading it is to say, hang on a minute, let's just sort of visually take out some of the things that have been put in that tell our brains now he's onto something else. Because they weren't there, and it's, it's, it's not really the way that, that Paul writes very often. That's the first thing. Second thing, look at what is written. Rather than just thinking, not just thinking now about how Paul writes, but look at what is written. If you track back up to verse 11, um, so I'm assuming now that you've got a copy in, in front of you, a text in front of you, um, on, on some kind of device or another. Um, we will now start referring to books as devices, uh, which you download from your shelf. And uh, So, we have spoken freely to you. Now, here Paul is... Um, He's been writing about the integrity of his ministry. And he has been writing about the um, hurt that he has been caused by those who have been maligning him in Corinth. And he said back up at verse 3 there, we put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. So we've, we've created no obstacles. We haven't tried to make life difficult for anybody. Um, we haven't tried to... 
um, put ourselves in the way of the gospel so that you follow us rather than following Jesus. Uh, We really have tried in everything not to, um, to, to make ourselves the issue. We've tried not to malign anybody. We've tried not to get sort of overtly defensive. Uh, we've tried not to uh, do anything except that which is for your good. And even though that's been an immensely costly experience, Paul has, has gone through that and he's told them about it. So, verse 3, having put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be decredited, discredited, he goes on in verse 11, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding your affection from us. As a fair exchange, I speak to my children, as to my children, open wide your hearts also. Now, go to the end of our passage this evening. It's chapter 7. Um, verse 2. Now we've just read in 6.13, open wide your hearts also. 7.2, make room for us in your hearts. And then in chapter 6, verse 3, we read, put no stumbling block in, we put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. In chapter 7, verse 2, We have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, we have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you, I've said that before. I've said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I have great confidence in you. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged. In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. So in actual fact, um, what what we're just taking tonight, for almost almost for convenience sake, as 6.14 through to 7.2, is part and parcel of exactly the same thread of thought, sort of weaving thread of threads of thought that Paul began at the very least in chapter 6, verse 3. That is to say that 6.14 following, far from suddenly being something imported from somewhere else about not marrying non-Christians, is part of exactly the same line of, of thinking and feeling out on paper. I mean, Paul is, the, 2 Corinthians is full of Paul's emotions and he's just thinking and feeling out loud onto the paper. It's very unedited. It's very straight and fresh and raw in places. Our passage 6.14 following is part and parcel of the whole thing about not putting a stumbling block in anyone's way, about not being like these, these people who have been coming into Corinth and doing all the false teaching, about us opening our hearts to you, about the exchange of affection, about making room for one another in, in our hearts and in our lives, about our giving of ourselves to one another, our costly living for one another, making the gospel clear, Now, when you, see, when you see it in its context, and when you see the kind of the, 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 the bookends of thought, three, no stumbling block in anyone's way. Thirteen, open wide your hearts also for us. Seven, two, make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. You see the sort of symmetry of those, uh, of those phrases. Then you begin to see that in fact, this passage, 6.14 through to 
um, or you could stop it at 7-1, is Paul saying to them, look, if, if our gospel has meant anything to you, if fellowship with us who brought you the gospel means anything to you, if the mutual affection with which we hold one another, in which we hold one another, means anything to you, if Jesus Christ and his giving of himself for you means anything to you, if, if following God and not being swayed by these false teachers, if sticking to the gospel that we preached and not being pulled away from that by people who are just dragging you away and, and, and they're going to drag you back into the kind of lives that you once lived, if you who are God's temple, 1 Corinthians 3, are really going to be his temple, then you've got to cut off that yoking together that once you had, and that these people are trying to force you back into, or pull you back into, with that which is not from God. So if you want to sum up what I'm saying so far, it is that 6, 14 to 7, 2, or take it 3, 4, um, far from being suddenly something about not marrying non-Christians, in actual fact, it is a call to sanctified, set-apart living in fellowship with one another. It is a call to be separate from sin. Now, this is not a call to a monastic life. This is not a call to remove yourselves physically from the world that you live in. It is a call to worship God and Him alone. And not to mix the the loyalties of your heart. Not to mix the allegiances that you form. Between all those loyalties that Christ commands and all those loyalties that the world and its idols will command. So you're, we might put it like this, it's about being in the world of Corinth, but not of the world of Corinth anymore. And Paul, um, as he's making this point, um, introduces this um, great picture of two animals being yoked together, mismatched, two animals that can never plow effectively a straight furrow, Two animals are going to be pulling away from each other all the time because they're of different temperaments, they're of different sizes, they're, they're just, <laughs> they should never just be yoked together like that. It's a terrific picture of what it means to avoid such close connections with people that inevitably your hearts are going to be turned away from Jesus. Now, that may be um, romance and love and marriage. Maybe. But the real, the real crunch for the people in Corinth was just engaging in the Corinthian life generally again, which was debauched, 
but which was also full of pagan worship. It was full of allegiances to almost any god you could think of. So let's just sort of you know, land the plane at the start here, or fairly near the start. Um, I've only been preaching for four hours already, so don't worry. Um, your heart, like my heart, is not made of iron. The heart which is the seat of the will in the Bible. The seat of our volition. Um, from, from which we get such ideas um, in, in our English language as, as, as volunteering. Doing something just out of your will rather than out of compunction often for earning. Um, the, the idea of going out into the world to do something, our intentions, our goals, you know, what it is in us that propels us out in a particular way so that we do this and not that. So that we take this course in life and not another course in life. Our wills, our hearts, none of us here have hearts of iron. Whatever we like to think about ourselves or other people, whatever our resolve in moments of great keenness, whatever we might sing when we're singing with other people and our hearts are full of it all, we can all be swayed. We can all, if we can borrow the language from John le Carre and espionage, we can all be turned. Let him that thinketh he stand take heed, lest he fall. Pride cometh before a fall. The good that I would, I do not. Those things that I would not do, I do, says Paul. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin? Our affections are precisely those. They are affections. So you can be reading your Bible every morning and praying and having a great quiet time. You can be involved in the life of a church, serving in one way or another. And you can be a, a model Christian man or woman, husband or wife. And you can still have an affair. You could still live a double life. You could find yourself attracted and swayed. You can have stacks of theology in your head, good, proper. You could be a solid gospel person, to use the current jargon. You could be a solid gospel clone. And find yourself worshipping success, career advancement, the opinion of others in a church, 
so that either by love or fear, something else starts commanding your life other than Jesus Christ. Compliance with a group that gives you affirmation, for instance. You can find yourself just beginning, little by little, going through a little gate, and then another little gate. And by definition, none of those gates are a big deal until you are so far off the track that you aren't even aware you're off it anymore. I've been in pastoral ministry for over 27 years. And I've seen it. And I've seen it with good, keen people with tons of potential and people who can talk the talk and even walk it and stray through the little gates. I know my own heart enough to know that I could also. So when Paul writes in 6.14, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. We ought to read there not simply an instruction but just a plea from Paul's heart. Don't be swayed. Don't be pulled away. Don't find yourself so inseparably connected to the non-Christian world in whatever form that you can no longer plow a straight furrow with Jesus. And that when he's saying, come this way, you're being pulled and pulled that way. And so to press this home, he asks five rhetorical questions. Um, And the first one, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Second, or what fellowship can light have with darkness? Third, what harmony is there between Christ and Belial? By this this time, a, a, a a phrase to describe Satan. Um, what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? And then the fifth question, what agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? Now those five questions put it pretty starkly, don't they? They, they put it in a black and white terms. They put it in terms of uh, what we might call immiscibility. You, you know, you remember from, from school chemistry lessons that oil and water are immiscible. They cannot be mixed. So you've got righteousness and wickedness, light and darkness, Christ and Belial, Christ and Satan, believer, unbeliever, temple of God, temple of idols. And each of the Uh, Terms in those five questions are synonyms for yoked together. So, in common, first question. Fellowship, second question. Harmony, third question. In common again with, uh, in in the fourth question, and the fifth question, agreement or single-mindedness. And that last question really does nail it for the Corinthians because, as I indicated, Paul has already written to them 
uh, in his first letter, or what we have as his first letter, in chapter 3 there, 10 to 17, about them, the Corinthians, being a building that is being built up and built together for God to inhabit. You are the temple of God. When he's writing to the church in Ephesus in 2.21 following, he makes the same point. You're you're like a building being built up together for God to inhabit. So the temple is not a physical building. They are the temple. What was the temple? Well, the temple, drawing on the temple in Jerusalem, was two things. In itself, it was the place where fellowship took place between man and God. So in the temple, there was the Holy of Holies. And once a year, on the Day of Atonement, on Yom Kippur, God would come down in his glory into that place, into the Holy of Holies. Only one man, the high priest, was allowed in on that one day, only after sacrifice had been made for sin. And he would go in bearing the blood of that sacrifice, and he would bear, therefore, symbolically, the sins of the people who were all out there, away from God. And he would take them in, and those sins would be forgiven. And amazingly, this sin-bearing and sinful high priest would come out alive from the presence of the Holy God. And the mere fact of him coming out alive was an indication of God's mercy, of life being allowed. It is of the Lord's mercy we are not consumed. Well, he wasn't consumed because God was merciful. So the temple was the place where fellowship existed between sinners and God because a sacrifice had been made for sin. It was the place where where the most close relationship between God and his people was sort of figured and, and happened. It, it was secondarily, in the broader biblical narrative, we learn in Hebrews, it was a copy of something, an earthly copy of that heavenly temple. So all that about it being the meeting place between sinful people and their holy God who had chosen them and just set his love upon them, and that fellowship could happen because sin was sacrificed for, blood had been shed, life had been given for life was all a sign of something that one day would happen. Without a building, because we read in Revelation 22 that there isn't actually a building called a temple in heaven, because there's just God and the people. So the place where God, as it were, lands on earth, ground zero for God on earth, The place where faith exists in a sacrifice that has been made, blood that has been shed, a life given for life, is you. And whether it's in this building, or whether it's in a school somewhere, or whether it's in a rented scout up for the time being in Montrose, it's you. It's us. It's the people. So how can we therefore possibly have 
an agreement, a meeting of minds with fellowship with any other God. When this God has made us his own, when this God has pledged himself to us and when this God has dealt with the problem of our sin at his own cost, how could we have, how could we make ourselves an inhabitant, a a habitation for anything else that is not God, anything that is an idol? So, having asked these five questions, which, which sort of, you know, nail the do not be yoked together, or perhaps more correctly um, from the Greek, stop being yoked together, because it's something that is already going on, and the Greek is more forceful in that sense, stop being yoked. It's not, if you're thinking of something, don't go there, it's you're going somewhere, pull back from it. Having asked these five questions to, to, to sort of nail the distinctiveness for God of the Christian community of the church, he then goes on to urge them uh, to stop being yoked together with unbelievers, the ones particularly who have been turning them away from Paul's gospel. And he urges them with these promises that occupy the bulk of verse 16, and then 17 and 18. And um, we know that he's got promises in mind because he says in 7.1, since we have these promises. So the promises run from, for we are the temple of the living God, as he has said, as God has said. Then come the promises. Now these are all drawn from the Old Testament, um, or from combinations of verses in the Old Testament. So... I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. It puts together um, Leviticus 26, 11 and 12 and Ezekiel 37, 26 and 27. And that's the first promise. I will live with them. See the fellowship there between God and his people, temple of God, God in the midst, that kind of thing. I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Of course, this is the great promise that is fulfilled in Revelation 21.3. When, you know, I heard a great voice from heaven saying, now the dwelling of God is with men, and they will be his people, and he will be their God. um, It kind of comes together there. It's it's, um, primarily, if you like, a new covenant promise. And if we were to track back in 2 Corinthians, we would find Paul beginning to write about that new covenant and the blessings of the new covenant, the ministry of the new covenant, which is all about reconciliation between sinful people and a holy God uh, from chapter 3 following. So God has promised fellowship with us. God has promised to inhabit our company. So that when believers get together, wherever they are, wherever they get together, God is in the midst. He's amongst us. Um, when I was at Gilk back in Aberdeen, um, 2004, we did a big refurb on the building. And uh, so we had to clear out for 11 months. 
And the second Sunday in January of 2004, we met for the first time in Harlow Academy. Now, some people were very anxious about doing this um, because um, Harlow Academy, as you might imagine, is not a particularly holy place. Um, and people get very attached to, to bricks and mortar, and when they've been particularly blessed in a building, then it's very easy in the mind for the blessing to get attached to the building, when in actual fact the blessing was from God, not the building. So there's a bit of nervousness about that, and it meant doing things differently, which for some people is difficult. Genuinely so, I'm not sort of knocking that. For some people it is difficult to start doing things differently. Partly because if you've been blessed before in the way things were done, not just where they were done, but the, th- the way they were done, you think that keeping doing them that way is going to keep on blessing, and, and you've confused the means with the God who has blessed. And then, of course, we couldn't have the organ, because it was going to be you know, inconvenient, to say the least, to cart the organ into Harlow Academy every Sunday morning and set it up and get the old kiss to whistles blowing again. Well, would God be pleased with our worship? We have an organ. What sort of question is that to ask in a free church? <laughs> and of course, that means we've well, hymn books. What are we going to do about hymn books? So we're going to have to have some screen now. Remember, this is 2004. Um, so, there's all this nervousness. And we started the, this morning service in Harlow Academy because we had to have it at 11 o'clock because that's the divinely appointed time. Um, and it was such a blessing. It was a joy. It was an absolute joy. And by the end of the service, everyone was just thrilled. Why? Because God was with us. So one elder said, we could have met in a cave this morning, and if God had been here, it would have been great. We didn't take him at his word, um, See, you are the temple of the living God. When you meet, God is with you. God is walking among you. He is your God. You are his people. And that is a promise. Second promise, therefore come out from among them and be separate, was not written by Martin Lloyd-Jones for the conference at Keele University where he decided to come out of the Church of England and John Stott decided to stay in, for those of you who are familiar with that particular event in the 1960s. Um, Therefore, come ye out from amongst them, um, which was written with the Yorkshire accent, actually comes from Isaiah 52.11. Because it was a call from God from Isaiah into the future when the people were in Babylon to leave Babylon, to leave the pagan place. Because God, through Isaiah, was saying the same kind of thing that Paul is saying here. Look, if, if, if you get too close, you're going to turn. If you start having such a good time in Babylon, you want to stay there. Of course, that is what happened. If you, if you do the maths in Nehemiah, Ezra and Nehemiah, it was a very small proportion of people who returned. They all returned voluntarily. They willed it. They had it in their hearts to do this. 
but it was a small proportion. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing. And here's the promise, and I will welcome you. Welcome is perhaps a, a, a better way of capturing what we've got here as receive. I will welcome you. And then the third promise, um, which is drawn from 2 Samuel 7.14, and one or two other passages in the Old Testament sort of echo the same thing. I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says Yahweh Almighty. Said to David in that watershed chapter in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel 7. So these are three promises about being with God and God being with us as his children, as his people, as those whom he has drawn back to himself out of a pagan world. And because we are gods, because we belong to God, then we must purify ourselves. So do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Verse 14 parallels in the way that Paul is writing here with let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness or separateness or set-apartness or perfecting sanctification out of reverence for God. Out of that loving, respectful, close bond of fear. This is not the fear that is terror, This is the fear that comes from love. This is reverence and awe. This is the fear that every husband has for their wife. And if you haven't got that yet, then your wife would be pleased if you would learn it quickly. This is not a fear of God which is in any way separate from love. It's the flip side of it. Because you've put all your eggs in that basket and you wouldn't want to hurt that person for your entire life. And five words from that, that person can mean more to you than a thousand from anybody else. So, do not be yoked with unbelievers. Go with, let us purify ourselves. Now, final point. And here's the really distinctive thing about what Christianity is like. Here's the thing that makes Christianity completely different from everything else that is called a religion or even just a religion of human effort and uh, deadly doing. Do you see what Paul writes in 7.1? It's so easy to miss it. He says, since we have these promises, let us purify ourselves. You see, our Christian purity, our wholehearted and completely single-minded devotion to God, our wariness of allegiances and yoking ourselves with that which will pull us away from Jesus, our sensitivity to that being a possibility, in fact, a very real possibility for any of us, and even for a whole fellowship can go off, on the, rail, can go off the rails. The, the warnings against that and the desire not to go that way arise out of the wonderful grace and mercy and promises of God. You see, what every other religion would write, 
And just the human spirit would write, and what every parent would write, is something like, since we have these threats, since we have these threats, But God says in his word, since we have these promises. And the pull to the God who out of sheer grace promises us fellowship and intimacy and closeness with himself is what really will motivate a Christian far more than anything else. It is the love that draws us. That Paul is writing about here. See, God was under no obligation to make the promise that gets promises that get combined in that first promise in verse 16. And he was under no obligation to make the promise to his returning people in 17. And he was under no obligation to make that promise to David and the echoes of it that we find elsewhere in the Old Testament. No obligation at all. God is under no obligations. He is God. Nobody can tell him what to do. Nobody can say, you must do this because this is right, because he defines right. There is no right apart from that which is God's right, true false, good, bad, whatever. He doesn't just fit all our definitions of right or wrong. That would be an idol. He defines right and wrong. It's up to us to fit him because he's God. But you see what that means? That means that whatever he does, he does for one reason. He does it because he wants to. That's all. He does it because he wants to. It is his will. End of. So he wants to live with us and walk amongst us and be our God and for us to be his people. He wants the very heart of God at the core of the universe. He wants to welcome you. He wants to have us as his children. Because he is so good and wants us so much. Let us purify ourselves from anything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. So instead of trying to drive as close as you can to the cliff edge in life, don't even think about where the cliff edge might be. Instead, try and drive as close to God as you can because he's so wonderful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would give us hearts like this. We pray that in our hearts there might be the the answering, mirroring love for you.
that you have for us. We thank you for the amazing promise that when we draw near to you, you draw near to us. And so, Lord, we pray that we might draw near to you and that our daily walk would be as close to you as possible. We pray that we might long for more closeness, more intimacy, more fellowship with you. We pray, Lord, that we might count it such an incredible delight to be being built together as a a place for you to inhabit, a fellowship for you to inhabit, that that we, we we just miss most of the alternatives. And the ones we see, we don't want. Help us, Lord, we pray, to love you. We want you to have the affections of our hearts. We confess our weakness. We confess, Lord, our, our tendency to unfaithfulness. We confess, Heavenly Father, our, the ease with which we can be captivated by, by some new trendy thing. By some uh, younger and attractive, more attractive model. Keep us, Lord, we pray. Help us not to stray. Lord, what what we're praying, we're praying for each other. We're praying it for the fellowship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.